Welcome to a special episode of the Global Dispatches podcast, live from the United Nations General Assembly. The annual opening of the UN General Assembly is always a key moment on the diplomatic calendar. Hundreds of world leaders head to New York to address the General Assembly and participate in various meetings and events around the city. And this week, in partnership with the United Nations Foundation, I am bringing you key highlights from the 77th UN General Assembly in a daily podcast series. Today is Thursday, September 22nd, and this will be the final day of our UNGA series. And it was a big day at the UN. Leaders' speeches continued, including a much-anticipated speech from the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley. Years ago, we spoke about small island developing states on the front line because we were the canaries in the mine. Today, we speak of all countries. And this hot, hot summer, with wildfires from California to heat waves in North America and Europe, to waterways in Europe being prohibited from the ability of vessels to traverse it, to floods in China, and above all else, the apocalyptic floods in Pakistan, for which our heart goes out to the people of that country. And at the Security Council this morning, there was a meeting on Ukraine that was unique for the fact that both the Secretary General and the Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, Karim Khan, briefed foreign ministers. The meeting focused on war crimes and crimes against humanity committed in Ukraine since the Russian invasion. And here, the ICC has had jurisdiction to investigate and prosecute alleged war criminals for crimes committed on Ukrainian territory. Ukraine voluntarily ceded that jurisdiction to the ICC earlier this year. This investigation by the ICC is one of the largest in the history of the court and is impacted by Russian disinformation campaigns. At the meeting, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov called allegations of mass atrocity in Bucha to be a propaganda campaign. But in his remarks, ICC prosecutor Karim Khan forthrightly described what he has seen in his visits to Ukraine. And the picture that I've seen so far is troubling indeed. I have been uh, to Ukraine uh, three times, and one has seen a variety of destruction, of suffering, and harm that fortifies my determination and my previous finding that there are reasonable grounds to believe that crimes within the jurisdiction of the court uh, have been committed. Uh, And if I may, Madam President, be quite direct, uh, when I went to Boucher and went behind St. Andrew's Church, the bodies I saw were not fake. When I walked the streets of Boryadenka, the destruction that I saw of buildings and schools was all too real. And when I left Kharkiv, the bombs I heard land gave a very somber insight and a very small insight into the awful reality that is faced by many of our brothers and sisters and children that are in a war zone. Throughout the meeting, leaders condemned obvious Russian war crimes, once again providing a demonstration that Russia is really deeply isolated at 
the United Nations. Changing gears a bit, we have two interviews for you today. First up, I speak with Francoise Vani, Director of External Relations and Communications at the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, and Malaria. The Global Fund is essentially a multilateral pool of money dedicated to combating those three deadly diseases. It has a highly regarded track record, and one of the major events happening during High Level Week is a fundraiser known as the Global Fund Replenishment. This happened Wednesday night and is the topic of our first segment. We are fighting the deadliest diseases in the world, HIV, TB, and malaria. And for those three diseases, COVID-19 has very much set us backwards. Next, I speak with Suzanne Rufo, Senior Advisor for Oceans and Climate at the United Nations Foundation, who is attending a meeting of foreign ministers and civil society leaders committed to transition. I think there's an important focus on how that clean power will really benefit all, so developing countries, but also vulnerable communities within developed countries and big economies. Here is my conversation with Françoise Vanny of the Global Fund. We are speaking following the Global Fund Replenishment, which was one of the major moments during High Level Week. It happened Wednesday evening. Before we talk about the substance of what happened, can you set the scene for us? What was the room like? President Biden was the host. I know many heads of state spoke. Just take listeners inside that room briefly. Before we go into the room, let me just set the scene from a what's at stake perspective, given that we are fighting the deadliest diseases in the world, HIV, TB, and malaria. And for those three diseases, COVID-19 has very much set us backwards, and we very much need to recover the lost ground if we want to continue to save lives and reach the 2030 target. So we went into this room as Global Fund partners, very much having in mind the number of lives at stake. And the room was full of commitment, I would say, to make sure that we continue this fight despite the quite challenging environment we find ourselves in. So a lot of energy, a lot of commitment in the room, a lot of excitement around the leadership of President Biden and the United States government. And it was a very packed room with a very high level of attendance from many, many countries and private sector partners and community and civil society organizations. So the partnership very much coming together, full of excitement, I would say, commitment to make sure that we continue to fight for what counts. So what were some of the major pledges that were made last night? So we raised yesterday $14.25 billion so far, which is a very significant outcome and the largest achieved so far by the Global Fund and any other global health organizations. We got very significant pledges from key donors. In particular, I would highlight the United States. They pledged earlier this year, back in March, $6 billion for the Global Fund, very much setting the mark for everybody else to follow their leadership. And then 
That represents a 30% increase over the sixth replenishment pledge, which is in line with our investment case and the funding needs for uh, the fight against HIV, TB and malaria. And yesterday, we were able to secure other G7 commitments along the same lines. So in particular, we had a 30% increase from the sixth replenishment pledge from Germany, from the European Commission, from Japan, from Canada, also a very significant increase over 20% from France, 20% increase from the Gates Foundation and many other implementing partners and donor partners committing to very significant pledges. Probably the most remarkable being the pledge from Korea, who quadrupled their commitment over the six replenishment pledge. So a very, very significant step up. So despite, you know, the world being very concerned by implications of the war in Ukraine, other conflicts, inflation, food and energy crisis, climate change, and so on, it was a formidable demonstration of the commitment to the fight against the deadliest diseases. We still have two big donors, founding partners of the Global Fund, the UK and Italy, who could not pledge yesterday given the specific national circumstances, but we fully expect them to pledge in the coming weeks and to adjust our outcome for the seventh replenishment soonest. So I wanted to dial in a little bit on that $6 billion pledge from the Biden administration. Under U.S. statute, the U.S. can pledge $1 for every two that is raised from the rest of the world. And your target for this replenishment was $18 billion, meaning that the United States, the Biden administration, was going to max out its pledge if every other country in the world maxed out. So it is, I think, significant that the U.S. made this pledge. Also significant is that last night, this $18 billion goal was not reached. You did note that the United Kingdom, which is historically one of the largest donors, did not make a pledge last night because obviously there's a very recent change in government, similar circumstances in Italy. But it seems hard to imagine that the pledges from the UK and Italy will fill that gap between 14.25 and 18. What are you expecting? So we very much expect both the UK and Italy to make strong pledges. They are both funding partners, funding members of the Global Fund, very, very important donors. The UK is historically the third largest public donor to the Global Fund. They have contributed so far a total amount of £4.43 billion. So a very, very important donor to the Global Fund. So we very much look forward to a strong pledge. Similarly for Italy, they have given us all the reassurance that they intend to make a strong pledge. So obviously, this is our expectation. However, as you said, it's very unlikely that the, some of those two pledges would make us reach the 18 billion targets. So we will have to continue our fundraising efforts as we move forward and very much work towards maximizing the impact of every single dollar that we have raised and will continue to raise in order to achieve our goals and to save how many lives we possibly can. And it's just worth emphasizing that if that $18 billion is not reached, the 
max contributions from the U.S., the $6 billion, is necessarily going to have to leave uh, some money uh, on the table. But, you know, focusing on what was raised and what you expect to be raised, how will those dollars be put to use in the service of fighting AIDS, TB, and malaria over the next three years? We very much intend to leave as little money from the U.S. government on the table as possible. If Our target is very much to try and maximize that, but we'll see as far we can get. As I said, our efforts are not over. We will continue. Efforts in the coming three years as we implement our new cycle on ground are going to be guided by the new strategy of the Global Fund, was approved by our board last year, which looks into building on the lessons of 20 years of impact and in which we have saved 15 million lives, but also the lessons of COVID-19 and what is that it has taught all of us. So the strategy is very much focusing on both fighting the three diseases with very focused efforts to address some of the challenges that we keep facing, for example, in the area of HIV prevention, uh, but also beyond the three diseases, the strategy that will guide us as we implement uh, the seven replenishment is going to uh, be much more deliberate in strengthening health systems, including community systems, uh, which have uh, proven to be uh, so crucial um, in, in fighting not only the old pandemics, but also the new ones, such as COVID and the ones uh, that may come. So we will be much more deliberate in investing in health systems, community systems to help um, the, the countries and communities we support be better prepared uh, for any future health threats. There will also be a much more significant effort around strengthening community uh, leadership and making sure that communities affected by the three diseases are at the centre of the response, of designing and implementing the response to those three diseases. So these are some of the guiding principles for the three years to come. I just note that the ambient sounds of UN High Level Week and the motorcade passing by is now going from wherever you are on the east side of New York to, to wherever I am, which is just fitting for the moment. I wanted to go back to how you started our conversation discussing the progress and more recently the lack thereof in the global fight against AIDS, TB, and malaria. We were making a lot of progress, it seems, and then COVID hit. How has the pandemic impacted what progress had been made against those three diseases? COVID-19 has been devastating in terms of the fight against HIV, TB, and malaria. And in 2020, we got uh, backwards in our program indicators across the three diseases for the first time in 20 years history. I mean, that's worth emphasizing. There has been, since the advent of the Global Fund, just unrelenting progress against these diseases. But then COVID hit. Absolutely. We had made progress year after year. And that was the, you know, the single uh, most significant obstacle in the fight. So in 2020, we, we got backwards very significantly. And perhaps it's worth highlighting that we got backwards even more so in areas such as prevention and uh, testing for HIV, but also very much in terms of identification of um, TB missing cases and TB treatments, we've got um, significantly backwards. Uh, the, the good news, though, is that in 2021, uh, thanks to uh, massive investment um, supported by uh, many of our donors, including the United States, we have been able to uh, support countries to fight back 
And we have seen results that we've just published, actually, that demonstrate that countries are on the, on the recovery path. 2020, the impact was, as I said, devastating. We can see in 2021 countries going back to uh, the trajectories that we, we want them to be on, recovering some of the lost ground across the three diseases. So it's really down to uh, leadership in countries, both obviously government, but also communities, the innovations that they have put in place, and also uh, the additional funding that we've been able to deploy to support their efforts. So we are getting back on tracks, but we are not there yet. This is why this replenishment is so important to make sure that we very much recover the lost ground and completely get back on track to achieve the 2030 target. But we are not there yet. So say the end number of the global fund replenishment is just short of 18 billion, is say... 16 or 17 billion, is that funding sufficient to regain progress that had been made prior to COVID and continue this kind of shift that you just identified starting to happen last year in 2021 towards progress against those diseases? The answer to that question is no. When we published our investment case for the seventh replenishment back in February this year, we were very clear in our assumptions and in our modeling that we needed at least $18 billion. And this at least is important because it is based on the assumption that implementing countries are going to increase very significantly, that domestic resources allocate to the fight against the three diseases and to health more generally. And this is going to be challenging given the current economic context. Secondly, our assumptions were also assuming that there would still remain a funding gap to fund the global plans against the three diseases. So in a way, we were already shooting below the actual targets in terms of the global funding needs for the fight against HIV, TB and malaria. So we were already sort of at that least level. We're assuming and we are continuing to assume that countries will step up, but we know it's going to be challenging given the context. So the $18 billion is really the target and the minimum required. So if we don't meet this target, indeed, we will have to look at how we maximize the impact of every single dollar, as I said, but also we will have to face some choices in terms of how we prioritize our work in coherence with our strategy but with a little bit less resources than the ones that we need. Francoise, thank you so much for your time on uh, this just very busy day for the Global Fund. I much appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mark. A big thank you to Francoise for taking the time to speak with me about the Global Fund Replenishment. And now for our final segment of this series, we are turning to Suzanne Rufo, Senior Advisor for Oceans and Climate at the United Nations Foundation. So I am in New York, you are in Pittsburgh, and I should say there is historic precedent for the center of action shifting to Pittsburgh during High Level Week. In 2009, 
The G20 held a meeting in Pittsburgh in the middle of High Level Week, and you had diplomats going back and forth between Pittsburgh and New York all week long, all to say that there's nothing unusual about, about me speaking to someone from Pittsburgh about what's going on. And what is going on is the Clean Energy Ministerial, which I know you have been participating in. Can you tell me what is that meeting and why is it significant and what's been going on? The Clean Energy Ministerial is a really important part of our climate strategy globally. And I think what's exciting about having it in Pittsburgh now is that we are bringing together not only the Clean Energy Ministerial, but also what's called Mission Innovation. And these are both designed to bring ambitious governments together to help solve the climate crisis, essentially by focusing in on the need to produce clean, plentiful, and cost-effective energy. So this is really significant because we're bringing together these two different efforts to really supercharge all these efforts to develop and implement and scale clean energy solutions around the globe. And not only is it a government meeting, but it also brings in private sector and academics and youth and civil society. Everyone is concentrated on this one topic here in Pittsburgh. And what's going on with that topic? Have there been any specific outcomes? What's like the global situation on clean energy and where do we need to be to be closer to the Paris Agreement goals? So we're just getting rolling in Pittsburgh. So the anticipation is pretty high. But basically, you know, power is one of the biggest sources and energy is one of the biggest sources of emissions. So in order to meet the Paris targets and get to our 1.5 goals, we really need to decarbonize the energy sector. And so what we're doing in Pittsburgh is talking about the whole range of what that looks like. So we're talking about power generation, transportation, industrial production, buildings. So everything from electric vehicles, shipping, aviation, renewable energy, nuclear, all of those things are on the table here. And the key theme here is really about implementation. You know, there's been lots of discussion, there's been lots of commitments, but how do we really make this happen? And that's really what we're watching for here. So the meeting in Pittsburgh and ongoing events here in New York come at a key moment in international climate diplomacy. We are just a few weeks away from COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. How does what's happening in Pittsburgh and also what's happening here in New York fit into broader trends that we're seeing leading up to COP27? Yeah, I think the timing is really critical here and the timing is good to have this discussion. When we get to Egypt, we really want governments to focus on what's possible and what can be done to actually achieve the Paris goals. And again, that focus is going to be on implementation. So what's happening here in Pittsburgh, bringing together the private sector, finance, civil society, governments, and governments at all levels, is really providing momentum and confidence so that governments can go in and say, we can do this. It's viable. We've got our constituencies behind us. And there is a path forward that's going to truly leave no one behind, which is one of the key parts of the Paris Agreement. So, you know, I think governments will have the support and confidence to go in and make hopefully good decisions when they get to Sharm el-Sheikh. And I think that's true of what's happening in New York, too. Are there any like specific outcomes you're looking towards either in any meeting in New York this week or in Pittsburgh that you think would be particularly like relevant or impactful in that lead up to COP27? I'll talk about Pittsburgh. There's not one specific announcement, but I think what we'll see are announcements 
on investments in clean energy across the board. And more important than that, but some really concrete targets for delivering that energy. So what does this really look like on the ground or in the case of shipping in the water? I think there's an important focus on how that clean power will really benefit all. So developing countries, but also vulnerable communities within developed countries and big economies. There has been a real focus on developed economies for you know, a lot of reasons, including the fact that they produce a lot of emissions. But I think that there'll be a new focus in New York, in Pittsburgh, and in Sharm el-Sheikh on solutions that are appropriate for developing countries, and particularly developing countries in Africa and these vulnerable communities. And I think there is no less need to drive innovation there. I also think there's going to be a focus on new collaborations. You know, this isn't just government decisions. It's about what we need to do with private sector, with civil society, and really start to cross sectors. So here in Pittsburgh, just as an example, we're having conversations between green hydrogen producers and shipping companies and shipping leaders to really talk about how green hydrogen can help provide the fuels that we'll need to decarbonize the shipping sector, which is one of the hardest sectors to decarbonize. So I think those kinds of partnerships, those kinds of discussions are what we're expecting. So you've mentioned shipping a couple times now. What role do oceans and the shipping industry play in providing opportunities for solutions on climate change challenges? And you know how are those issues being discussed this week? And, and how do you expect those discussions to unfold in the weeks leading up to COP27 and in COP27? So I think there's a growing recognition from governments and from others that, you know, the ocean is not just a victim of climate change. You know, we have a historical narrative that we all have to protect the ocean. I think we're seeing more and more that actually the ocean plays a critical role in protecting us from climate change. It absorbs a good portion of the carbon dioxide we're putting in the atmosphere. It absorbs the heat that we're putting in the atmosphere. So we really need to think about the ocean's role in all of this. Shipping alone is 3% of global emissions. That would make it the eighth largest emitter if it was a country. So it's a really important sector that we need to tackle. And it is a big part of the trajectory towards getting towards a 1.5 agreement because 80% of the goods that we consume as a global population travel on ships somewhere. I think in the broader narrative, we'll also see more ocean solutions, things like coastal ecosystems that can sequester carbon, but also help provide resilience for the communities behind them. We'll see offshore wind energy, offshore renewable energy becoming a bigger and bigger portion of the energy that we're consuming as a planet. So thinking about how we really use those types of solutions to get us towards our goals is going to be really important. And I think you'll see that theme come out in New York. It'll come out in Pittsburgh around shipping and offshore energy, and it'll come out in Sharm el-Sheikh from nature-based solutions to energy. Susan, thank you so much for your time. This was really helpful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have any questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Please rate and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts.